Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. I forgot to mention last week that I want to give you some homework inasmuch as we're here in a, the right place, a church, to be taught and to teach. It would be appropriate to have homework. You're not going to get a test. God gives tests. I don't. I would like for all of you each week to read the Sermon on the Mount. There's 111 verses, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read one chapter a day for three days, and I would ask you to read it slow. No fast reading or that whatever they do when they run their hand down a page. Read it one word at a time. Then after you read it, I want you to think about what it said, even if you've read it a hundred times. I want you to get yourself in close proximity to what God is saying. Because there's no more important teaching in all the Bible in the New Testament than what we read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And if this little series lasts a year, and it might, that's fine. If it does, it will mean that in a year's time, you will have read the Sermon on the Mount 52 more times. And the more you read it, the more you're going to get used to it. And the more you're going to remember it. And the more you're going to think about it. And the more it's going to affect your life. And the more it's going to guide your steps. This is no challenge or no rules here. Just that you would read it every week. Just make yourself sit down and quit doing whatever you're doing. And sit down and read chapter 5. You can read real slow and it won't take you long at all. Blessed are the pure. And it's okay. Read it like that. And then whenever you're through... Give yourself a little test. What did you read? What did it say to you? Do you do that? Can you do that? Are you willing to do that? What will it take for you to make the big adjustments? Is this God speaking to me? What is he saying to me? That's the way you relate to God. And the more you become in union and harmony with the Lord, and a living Christ begins to dwell in you like that, you become, as we used to say years ago, word inside minded. Your mind thinks biblically. It thinks scripturally. When people say things like Bonnie and I were talking coming up here tonight, the more you think about what you're hearing, and it's not God because I said it, you know that. You search the scriptures yourself and see if it's what the Lord says. And the more you familiarize yourself with scripture, the easier it is as you look in this crazy world to see what's wrong with it. You don't have to think, well, I wonder what's wrong with that. You just let the word live in you, and it'll pop up, and you'll have a lesson. It'll show you, that's not right. That's not right. You shouldn't do that, and you'll think, I won't. Or you say something you shouldn't say, and immediately you get pulled over by the Holy Ghost, and you get a ticket. You said, you know better than that. You've been th-. You say, boy, I have. I-. So just keep this word living and alive inside of you. Don't set it aside for twice a week, hauling at the church to read it, you know, your Bible. But read it, live it, think about it, dwell on it, meditate, Psalm 1, meditate day and night in it, and let it become a living, vital part of your life. Living and vital, amen. Now in chapter 5, Jesus set them all down on a hillside, and the Bible said in verse 2, he opened his mouth and proceeded to teach. And what he gave us is what historians and biblical Writers have said for years are probably the, the most important part of the New Testament because it gives us principles of how God wants us to live. Now, while the title on the front of this message, if you get these messages on, you can't say tape anymore, but on the disc, 
It just says Sermon on the Mount. My particular title is longer than that. It's Life on God's Terms, dash, the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what it is. It's how God wants us to live. This is the standard that God has drawn. It's not the standard that the whole church accepts. Christians refuse to acknowledge. Once they read this or they hear you talk about it, they draw back from it in acknowledging that it is the way I'm supposed to live and I'm going to live. Because if you say that, you're going to get convicted. And if you get convicted, then you've got to deal with guilt. If you're going to deal with guilt, you're going to have to repent. So there's a whole lot here that people don't want to hear. They really don't. It's like Romans chapter 1 in the last day, but he speaks of the world there. He says, men did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Because people have chosen to live away down here and add church to it, the flavor of church to my lifestyle. And they don't want to give up a lot of things that they do. But if you want to live the way God wants you to live, if you want to live on his terms, you got to go by what he says. And this is what he wants. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. It's a word which can mean happiness. It's also a word which means to be approved, to have approval. And if you read it like that, it adds another dimension to what it already says. For example, last week in verse 3, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or those that have the approval of God on their life are those that are poor in spirit. And we look for a while at what that is and what that isn't. But remember one of the verses that we read in Isaiah 57? And it talks about the kind of person that God chooses to fellowship with. Y'all remember the time in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said once, I never knew you? He said we were very busy and active and doing things and coming up with good ideas and good programs and noble things to do. Not necessarily things that are inspired by the Lord, but just things to do. And he said there were those who prophesied, those who did miracles, and those who did great things. And remember Jesus said, I never knew you. The word know there has an idea of relationship to it. We never had a relationship where you let go of you and you took upon me. That is, you must decrease and God must increase. You didn't give up your ways for my ways. You chose to do things your way. I never knew you. And he said, you workers of iniquity. And again, iniquity, a Greek word, Hebrew and Greek, implies the idea of selfishness, self-centeredness, living for self, doing things my way. And so there's a real danger in the way a lot of people live and call it Christianity because it's not Christianity at all. But to say that is to invite a fight or war or be called legalistic or dogmatic or something. But I'm just going to say what he said in Matthew 7. He said, I never knew you. He said, I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the contrite. This is what God does. And he said the word revive there because one of the characteristics of God's people, as is described in verse 3 there, is that they are poor in spirit. That is, you recognize before God your own self-worth. God didn't save anybody because somebody had something that God could use. There was nothing about us that was acceptable to God. All we like sheep, 
had gone astray. There is none righteous, not even one. So what in the world did God see? He saw nothing in me that caused me to be saved. God saved me because he loved me. And I don't know of any other reason to save me. I wouldn't have saved me. I would have surely saved you all. But I saw nothing in me that was worth saving. And especially the more you walk with the Lord, the quieter you get. Just be quiet and listen to what he's saying and quit having so many opinions and talking so much and just be still. And as you begin to read this, you begin to find out, you know, this is all about God and nothing about me. I'm nothing more than a hose. I'm just a hose. A hose that is only useful if water comes out of it because that's where life is. But a hose in and of itself, while you may praise it and laud it for the hookups it's had, it's nothing without God. Remember the unprofitable servant in Luke chapter 17? When he said, Lord, increase our faith, and he told him a few things. And he said, when you've done everything that you're commanded to do, say this. We are still unprofitable servants, for we have only done those things which were commanded us. And what can anybody in this room do that is acceptable to God unless it is inspired and given to us to do by God? And if we do what God gives us to do and he enables us to do it, what great boast do we have? I've only done what he enabled me to do. That great evangelist who led 10,000 people to the Lord, could he have done that without God? Could they have legitimately heard the truth without God inspiring the word? Well, then who should get the glory? God does. We can pat each other on the back. Boy, you really did good tonight. I did nothing. If there's no anointing on anybody, preachers or whoever, if there's no anointing, there is nothing. It's just a show in the flesh or it's just another Christian meeting where we're inspired to follow some man. But when God is involved, and when that work of his spirit, that we call it the anointing, when that begins to work, it's like they said at the end of chapter 7, they were astonished at his words because it's something that God affects people with. But as of us, we can't do that. I can be used of God for him to do that. But I get no credit for that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I must come to the place where I recognize I deserve nothing. But he brought me into his courts. He's equipped and blessed and put my feet up on a rock, established my going, put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, as the psalmist said. And yet I could do none of that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Whose joy is it? Or what do I have without it? I have nothing. I'm not trying to talk about self-abasement tonight, but I am trying to say this, what I think I said last week, that a man who is poor in spirit is a man who realizes his spiritual bankruptcy before God. I am nothing apart from God, but in Christ I can do all things. Not because I just want to go out and do some stuff, but because when inspired and anointed to do it, it can get done. In and of myself or ourselves, what does God have that I have a right to? He said, you come boldly to the throne of grace. That's an invitation. I can come and I can ask because he told me that I can. But I can only come because he opened my eyes to see that. To be poor in spirit, again, is to recognize that you in and of yourselves, John chapter 15, where he's talking about the vine and the branches, the verse in there where he says, 
Without me, you can do nothing. Now, we don't like to think that way, not in this age of self-assurance and self, 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 self. But he says, without me, you can do nothing. Well, you can go to church. You can still preach sermons. You can do a lot of things. The world does it all the time. They don't acknowledge God, but nothing that they do is acceptable to God either. Proverbs talks about even the sinner, while he's plying his field, he sins. Or the man who donates so much money to a special cause and gets recognition for it, that's what he wanted. He would never do it privately with nobody ever knowing it because of his desire for self-praise and self-worship and all of that. You come to the place as a Christian, if you really want to grow, if you really want to be able to walk in the way God wants you to walk and be blessed the way he has promised to bless you, you've got to start with the fact that this is all about God and nothing of me. I have a will. I have a mind. I have a body. I have a will. The devil wants, very badly wants my will because with that he controls me. And God also gives me a reason why I should be willing to let him control me and yield to him. And when I do and he blesses me, it is because I've done what he wanted. I don't know how many Christians even understand what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that we as Christians, as we stand before God in the end, we'll realize that we made it to the very throne into the glories of God because God did it. He that started a good work will complete it. And he says in 1 Peter 5, when you have suffered for a while and you've done this and gone through that, he said, then God will finish what he started. You can't. I can't. It's made that way. And the Sermon on the Mount begins that way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the second one that we're looking at tonight in verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, he said, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is the emotional counterpart to being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a recognition of who I am Mourning is the emotional part of that. It's the reaction to that. Let me show you a few things about that tonight. It's not a popular theme today to talk about mourning any more than the next one is about being meek. It's not popular to talk about meek. Who wants to hear about being meek when you got the karate kid and Rambo and all of that stuff running around getting praises from this world that wants to be tough? And you talk about being meek. Well, how about talking about mourning. You think about mourning, most people think about funerals. Mourning. How could a man have the approval of God who goes about mourning? He didn't say goes about mourning. He said, blessed are those who mourn. So the questions are legitimate that people ask. Well, what does that mean? How can I just mourn? Do I just develop a long face like a horse? You know, horses have long faces. Are they Christian? No. There's some people who are just continuous. They have a spirit of mourning, I think. Not the biblical spirit, but they just go around with a sad face and a sad countenance all the time. They have no joy, no enthusiasm in their life. They're just always depressed looking. That's not what he's talking about either. Those who mourn, it does not mean like mourning at a funeral. It does not mean a sad, dejected countenance. 
you couldn't say that you have much of a testimony anyway if you walked around the streets like this. How you doing? I'm blessed. You don't seem to be very happy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he means to mourn. Mourning here is not referring to a loss of property or loss of a friendship or loss of something to an accident or some tragedy or weather related. It's not talking about that either. Because a lot of people mourn like that who have nothing to do with God. So being grief-stricken about something doesn't mean you're a Christian, doesn't mean that you're going to be comforted because a lot of them aren't. And again, it doesn't mean some melancholy spirit either where you just walk around sad and dejected. So then what is? What is then to mourn? Blessed are those who mourn. What does it mean? Well, it has to do with your personal grief about sin more than anything else. Every time I mention sin, I think of that time, but not every time, but I think about a brother of mine who's a preacher over in Virginia. And a lady came up one day right before she left the church. This was her final speech. And she said to him, why do you talk about sin so much? This is one of these upbeat new age people. Why do you talk about sin so much? It seemed like we come to church and you're always talking about sin. I mean, it's like, what is sin? There's a lot of people like that. But see, if sin is not a big deal in your life, then you won't mourn over it. It doesn't mean anything. It has no effect upon you. There's no emotional effect of sin. You get used to sin. You get hardened to sin. You get your conscience seared. And you don't have a problem with all this other stuff, with sin and all the effects of sin and all the things that sin does. If we as Christian people have a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin, we'll never have a reason to mourn. And therefore, this is meaningless scripture in Matthew 5. How many of you know that sin is what cuts you off from God? Or make it more refined, that he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. There are people who are so conscious of what God wants them to do that's right because, again, they read the Bible a lot. They think about what they've read or they pray a lot. Their mind is word of God minded. And when they mess up or sin, it really bothers them. It's almost like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Oh, Lord. And they mourn over that. It bothers them to the point that they deal with it and turn away from it. One of the reasons that a bunch of you, in some of the difficult times you've had in your life, have not gone back to the old life, didn't, oh, I can't, I just can't do it, is because you knew what you came out of. I can't speak for everybody else. I had my own experience. But what I came out of, the sinful life that I came out of when I came to the Lord, I was acutely aware of it the day I got saved. When I knelt on that side over there at the front of the church. My life, as I've said before, raced by me so fast I could almost count the sins. I mean, there I couldn't count that fast or that far, but there was so much. There was, as I think I said last week, there was a sense of unworth here. It's like that publican in the church who could not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. He didn't even feel like he had a right to even look up in the direction of God. 
But he bowed his head and smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where we all start. The very first thing anybody that's ever born again ever deals with, the first thing you deal with if you're legitimately born again is sin. And the thing that'll bother you the rest of your saved life is sin. Like whatsoever is not of faith, Romans 14, is sin. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And you read more than that in the Bible about all the different things about what we call sin. People don't like that today. I didn't come to church to hear about these things called sin. Listen to this new age song. Nobody's perfect. You got to get off of that sin. Look, nobody's perfect. God understands that we're not perfect. He knows we can't live exactly right all the time. Nobody can. And what God meant for us to do is just do the best you can and try as hard as you can. And look, that's all you can do. Then after that, you dress up and go out and party. I remember a young lady told me years ago, I think it was 1970, told me about a singing group, one of the gospel greats at that time, one of the biggest named gospel singing groups, and they came to their town, and one of those men made a play for her, and I guess she accepted, and, and I heard this group sing, and the one that she was talking about was the one that was most dramatic in his, about God. Of course, I'm sitting here thinking, listening. How could somebody have that kind of a pious look on their face and sing beautifully and so passionately about God and be a whoremonger? Is that possible? The same thing could be said of preachers. I'm harder on preachers than on these other people because I've known too many of these that didn't go well. How can that be? How can a preacher with a going church get arrested one day for driving drunk? How can that be? Have you no restraints in your relationship with God? Hasn't anything been established as sacred ground that you don't do that anymore? You die before you do that. Is anything sacred? Anything where I, I'm not going to do that. How can you ignore the very things you preach, preacher, or the things that you teach if you ever get around to doing that? How can you do all of that stuff and then go out and run around with some woman or drink or do the things the paper loves to print? Listen to me. Isn't there something wrong with your view of sin? Do you think that because you confessed one time to Jesus, you raised your hand and said, Lord, I believe that sin no longer is a problem? That you can sin and nothing can happen now? There's people that believe that. There has got to be inside of us. Let me say this so I'm not trying to overdo this. There has to be a view of purity of how you relate to God. There has to be something that I can only relate to God acceptably on his terms. How's that? 
I can only come to him at his invitation. I can only relate to him as he has stated I should relate to him. And anything else is unacceptable. I cannot design things that replace God's way. I've got to have convictions. My conscience, this part of my mind which is being renewed, where my conscience is, this thing has to be alive. And the only thing that is alive is the word which is living and active. And I've got to have this taken over here. My mind is being renewed by the word of God. It's being cleansed and washed, which is how he said he would cleanse his church with the washing of water by the word. And this cleansing taking place in our mind so that I become God-minded, inside-minded, God-minded, where I'm thinking about what I've been taught. I'm driving down the road and I see somebody dressed wrong. Shouldn't look at them. And today that's pretty common. And you look once and you said, whoops. And your heart says, that's a sinful way for a young lady to dress because it excites lust. And you say, that's exactly right. Why do they do that? But then if you look again, you go, wow. And you know, you said, oh, come on now. It couldn't be that bad. Well, what do you say in the same book, in the same chapters? If a man looketh up on a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. The heart is your secret place. That's where you've invited Jesus to reign is in your heart. And the word is his word to us. This is the way walk ye in it. And anything that is not according to that word any other way is not only is unacceptable, but it's sin. He that knoweth to do well or do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There must be in all of us, without laboring the point, there must be a doctrine of sin that is healthy and restraining. I must learn in my Christian life what is wrong and what I should not do. And I learned that by learning what is right and what I should do. Because whatever doesn't go with right and should do is wrong. Now, we need to be affected by that, though. So that when you do mess up or when you do sin, that you repent. You remember what happened to you when you got saved. Let me go back to that. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7 for just a brief moment. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 the more a Christian begins to realize the purity of God, the more he is affected by the darkness around him. The more he sees sin and its effect on mankind. Let me ask you all a question while you turn over to 2 Corinthians. Have you ever been troubled by the way people live? What if I told you there's been many times in my life that I have been bothered by dress that was not really appropriate? I mean, stuff is tight and revealing. Why would I be bothered by that? Because you got a dirty old mind, no? Why would I be bothered by that? Because I know it bothers other people. I can look away. I really can't. I can look away. I can shut my eyes and look away unless I'm driving. I got to keep them open. But when people do things that you know they shouldn't do, it bothers me. You know, when people profess to love the Lord and they miss church and don't come and have complaints and murmur and grumble, that bothers me. That's sin. We should know better than that. And people do it anyway. It does bother me. 
and I do clamor about it and complain about it, I have a right to. I've got to give an account for souls. I've told God, I didn't ask to do this, and I really don't want to do this. But having done it, I'm willing to do it. And if they're not going to line up, I'm going to really fuss at them. Maybe I fuss at them hard enough, they all quit coming. They don't have to do it no more. But that never did work. That never did work. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having said that, go down to verse 10 now. For godly sorrow, this is that work that the Lord does, for godly sorrow worketh what? Repentance. Now that's a gift. You cannot just repent. Repentance is something that God brings about in your life. You can't even take credit for repenting. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Do you see that part? It is God who breaks your heart, brokenness in your heart about sin. Again, as I said, I saw my life go by me the day I was born again. I saw my life go by me, and for the first time in my whole life, I was deeply ashamed and bothered by the fact that I willingly, by choice, did all of those things. I mean, I live by the same way you do. I live by choices. I chose to do all that. I chose to talk like that. I chose to act like that. I chose to go there. I chose to think like that. I chose to act like that. All them nasty and ornery things I ever did. It was my decision to do that. And I finally came one day when God was dealing with my heart. I was ashamed of it. But then I remembered the song, Just As I Am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. That's all I got. And then that second verse, just as I am in waiting not to cleanse my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. And I did. I followed my wife up there. I could do nothing. It was godly sorrow. It was God who worketh sorrow in us to bring us to repentance. Look at how many people can sit in church and go to sleep. I mean, they live like, they chase cars all week long. They live like a dog. All these other traits that are nothing about God, and they go to church to fall asleep. And they murmur, and they say things they shouldn't say, and all of that. Sin doesn't bother those people. Those people don't one day decide, I think I'll go forward and get saved. They probably couldn't if they wanted to. What would everybody think? I've been sitting here for 15 years. Boy, the devil whipped that one. One of the things that wanted to keep me in my seat that morning was the fact that I was a local basketball coach. And what would everybody think? I grew up in this church, was baptized in this church. What would everybody think if I went forward? Well, what's he he going down there for? He goes to church. I remember thinking that. That was one of my little thoughts. What would everybody think? You can't just do that. I mean, everybody think you weren't saved. I doubt if anybody believed I was anyway. I don't think it mattered if you were saved. That was not a word we used. 
then there was that moment in which deep, deep sorrow overrides your pride. And you could hear yourself on the inside saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody in this town thinks, this church thinks. I don't care what anybody says. I am lost and I'm going to hell and I don't want to. I'm being offered eternal life right here this morning. And I'm going up there to get it. I didn't know it was called that at the time. I didn't know any of these biblical terms. But I asked God to forgive me. But he said that godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. That's one of the things that a spirit of mourning will do. Can anybody be born again without sorrow? If you don't hate your other life, you'll go back to it. If you don't hate what you did and what sin did to your life and how it made a fool out of you, you'll go back to it. Because the devil knows if he can put enough heat on you now, chances are you'll say, I was just as good by everything. But if you're born again, you won't do that. You'll just tough it out. How about your failures as a Christian? You ever mourn over that? You ever said this? I can't believe I said that. Man, why did I say that? Why does that bother you? Because I know I shouldn't say that. I know a Christian shouldn't talk like that. He shouldn't laugh at that kind of stuff. I shouldn't be amused or amuse myself or entertain myself with that kind of worldly junk. And I sit there and watch that. Or I saw that. Or I heard that. I was around them long. Oh, God. Should we grieve about sins that so easily beset us? You know what one particular sin doth so easily beset all of us alike? You know, when Hebrews 12 talks about the sin, he's probably talking about a one particular sin, S-I-N, singular. And it's given up. He said the sin that so easily besets us, he said, look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Look what he went through. Look how he endured. He strove even the shedding of his blood. He shed his blood before he went to the cross. He shed it in the garden before Pilate. He was beat, and he went through it. And then he's given to us as an example. Why in the world would you then complain and cry about what you're going through now? Look at what Jesus went through. Hey, you put your hands on the plow. If you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. Remember that? See, these are things that are designed to get our attention and think, I mean, is his way or no way? This is the way you've got to live. I don't care who has some sermon on how you don't have to live this way. This is what he said. Isaiah 8, 20 says, if they speak not according to this word, it's because they have no light. But think about the little tantrum you had this week. I hope you didn't have one. I hope I'm just speaking editorially. Think of that little anger fit you had where you stomped and threw and spit or that tool you threw across the garage floor one time a long time ago. Hallelujah. And how you just kind of lost your temper and said something to your neighbor. I'll tell you one. I remember, remember he said, and then the week before you had been taught in church that we're supposed to be meek and humble. I'm so humble. Remember, you thought, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. No, you shouldn't, because now he that knows to do good and does it not to him, it's sin. You just sinned. Your sins in Isaiah 59, 2, separate between you and God, that he won't hear you. But we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the faithful, that if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 
you're not exactly thrown out because you messed up once, but you're not given the freedom to just mess up all the time. No one I can always say, I'm sorry, because that's the wrong attitude. No, sir. Mourning is something that you do because of the things that you do you shouldn't do. Just like the song says, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. Well, I mourn because I mess up. I mourn because I gave in so easily to my weakness. I let my weakness dominate me, just like there are people who can walk into your life and they can just walk around the corner and you meet somebody and you have a bad day because that person controls you. You're not free. A lot of times people that control you like that, you've never forgiven them. That's another sermon. But when it comes to mourning, you mourn because of the fact that why did I watch that? Why did I go there? Why did I wear this? Why did I say that? Why do I act like that? Why do I throw this fit? Why am I pouting? Why, why, why? You did that because you wanted to. God shows you how weak we are. We're all vulnerable. All of us are. We didn't know how weak we were until we heard the truth. Then when we heard the truth and we were joined in the fact that, yes, and then one day you turn around during the week and look what you did in violation of the truth. You say, oh, God. And you cried out, I am, oh, Lord God. That's better than you saying, well, who's perfect? See, here's one that mourns over the truth because they did what they shouldn't do. Here's one that just justifies their sin. And they don't get justified before God. I don't know that you can live properly and accurately the Christian life without knowing what it means to mourn over mistakes and failures. And I don't mean just, to, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I don't mean that all the time or running to the altar like many Pentecostal churches I've been in in my life, bunches of them. Comes time to pray, they go to the altar and just start wailing. Oh, God. I thought, well, is that a request? <laughs> Prayer is petitioning God. It's when you're alone and your sins have found you out and you realize just how weak and vulnerable you really are that it should just bother you bad. It should cause you to cry to weep over your sins and so forth. We mourn because of their sin by other people. Many a great man in history, many a great king, prophet, leaders, have wept over the sinful state of their people. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 about Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 23, 37, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which were sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. I think Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I think his humanity in the days of his flesh, as he looked knowing that this is God in a human body, walking through the streets of Jerusalem and, and Israel, Delivering people, setting the captives free, doing all of those things, and that he was rejected. He went to the cross. You know, before he went to the cross, his family even thought he was mad. His mother stayed with him. His disciples all forsook him. 
He even cried out on the cross. I wonder how many times Jesus looked at the people that he came to save and grieved because you don't even know who I am. I've told you who I am. I've given evidence of who I am, the signs and the wonders and the miracles and all the things that I have done. And you have rejected me. Folks, nothing has changed. It's still the same way today. As I've said to you before, one of the things that troubles me today about Israel, I'm going back next year. But one of the things that troubles me is I don't know how those people relate to God if they even do. I don't think there's that much interest in it. They have no priest. They've rejected Christ. They don't even want to hear his name. They won't even mention his name. They have no temple. They have no sacrifices. The Old Testament is just a book. They have no way of approaching God. They have no real deep interest in God. But this is how God said he would bring them back to the country. Put hooks in their jaws, Jeremiah said. He's going to bring them back, bring them back in unbelief. And I think when these people die, what happens to them? They don't believe in Jesus. He's not their Messiah. What happens to a nation of people that are dying like that? And yet God keeps them strong, and he will. Nobody's ever going to run them off again. They're going to try. But what do they have? What's going to happen? You tell me. What's going to happen to the multitudes of people in churches who have no real deep interest in God, only in a religious convenience? What's going to happen to all these people in the last day? What's going to happen? Is some clever preacher or some clever design of man going to come up and say that, well, you're all going to heaven anyway. I mean, nobody's perfect, so you're all going to heaven anyway. Just millions and gillions of us are going. And when you tell them, I said, Jesus said, the way that leads to life is narrow. There's no fun and games in narrow. It is a life that you have to live if you want to make it. And he said only a few will find it. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Only a few. I can honestly say I think about that. I think about things like that. And over the many years I've been here, I think about the number of people that I have known that have walked away from the Lord. I watched their children walk away from the Lord. And I shake my head and say, what can you do? And Lord, these people are going to perish. They're going to die in their sins. They're going to be led to think they're all right when they're really not. Just like Matthew chapter 7, they thought they were all right and Jesus said you weren't. Look at Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. No man was treated more harshly in the Old Testament than this man was. Job was judged in a special way, but Jeremiah was treated bad. But Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 15, Hear ye and give ear, and be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. And give glory to the Lord your God before he caused darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains 
And while you look for light, he turned it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Is he saying in verse 16, while there is time, turn to the Lord? Because can he not on some day, if you don't want to, make it all dark? Now, this is Jeremiah speaking. This is God speaking to Jeremiah and to the people. Verse 17, but if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and my eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. There's an invading army coming. They're coming all the way from Assyria, Iraq. They're going to come and get us. Nebuch had a razor and his crowd is coming. And they're coming for one reason, because we have sinned against God. We have turned away from the way that God has given us to live. And he called them, ah, sinful nation. We have rejected God. We don't want to hear what the prophet has to say. They turned their backs on God and God says, I will judge you. I will send another country upon you and they shall carry you away captive, all of you. Jeremiah said, if you don't turn from your ways, you're going to die. And he said, and if you won't hear what I have to say, he said, I'm going to weep for you because what's going to happen to you and your children? They're going to kill you. They're going to rip some of you apart right in front of you. They're going to take your king. They're going to put his eyes out in front of you. They're going to, before they put his eyes out, they're going to kill all of his sons in front of him. He'll have to see that. And they're going to put his eyes out. And they're going to carry him away captive. And you folks are going to mourn and moan with nothing. You're going to live in darkness. And they wouldn't listen. That's why people weep over things like that. Because no matter how passionately you say things, people don't want to hear it. Look at chapter 14 and verse 17. Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them. Let mine eye run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, God keeps telling them, quit sinning, turn from sin, and this is what happens if you don't. Quit sinning, this is what will happen if you don't. Stop, sin no more, this is what will happen if you don't. And the people kept rejecting. They burned his book, threw him in a well, threw him in a prison, did everything they could to silence him. They couldn't kill him. They wanted to, but they couldn't. And without being vengeful against him, without having a hateful attitude, why are you all going to get... He just wept for them. Because deep in his caring heart, he could see what's going to happen to a whole bunch of people that have rejected God. They can't see the tragedy that is coming, and yet it is coming. Go to the right of Jeremiah to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9. And verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Set a mark upon the foreheads of these men, the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. There were people in the city like Jeremiah who were grieved because of sin, because of the sinful ways of the people. Because they were grieved by it, they cried out to God, and God said, These will be spared. That's what he said. Put that mark on their head so they will be spared. I remember the great verse in Psalm 126.2 used to quote it all the time in the early days of my Christianity. They that go forth weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. 
That was a great revival verse. They that go forth carrying precious seed, that would be the word of God. And weep. It's laboring before God for the souls of men. Lord, touch hearts tonight. Move upon people. How many of you know that the preacher can save nobody? I'm not even capable of doing that. Only God can do that. Oh, God, move upon their hearts tonight. This one and that one. Can't mention names here. I can mention them in my office. Lord, they seem to have such a hard heart about this. She doesn't seem to want to even try. He doesn't seem to care. Lord, this one just acts like it doesn't matter. And Lord, they don't pay attention. They're not learning. They're not growing. Oh, God, do something. If he doesn't, you know what? Nothing gets done. Hello. Nothing gets done. If he doesn't meet us here, we have not been met. We're having church, to be sure. We're having church. We're preaching, talking, and all that. But if he doesn't meet us here, all we've heard is words. But if he's here, then we're hearing things that will affect your decisions and your choices tomorrow. But this is what he does. This is the way he does it. Would you turn to James 4? Go back to the back of the book. James 4 and verse 1. Having been in a couple of church wars, at least one, one good one and one half good one in my life. Listen at the instruction he gives to people that like to fight in church, like to draw apart and all of that. From whence cometh wars and fighting, verse 1, among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not, yet kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lust. You adulterers and adulterers, whoo, that's pretty strong. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? That's where you learn that kind of stuff from the world. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture says in vain that the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? Think of it like this. The spirit of God that dwells in you jealously guards you and won't share you with anybody else. And when you start giving way to other things and violating, quenching the spirit, in other words, and doing things you should not do, it grieves the spirit. Is it possible to grieve the spirit? Next verse, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, therefore he saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wow. He's talking to the church. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves. That's part of being meek next time. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. But instead of fighting and warring, look at, what's, look at what you're contributing to God's people. One thing that God seriously hates is division. That's a no-no. Separating chief friends, he that soweth discord, so forth. And he says, look at you, you're fighting in the church. Is it over politics? 
and you're arguing with each other and you're going to war with each other and the spirit is about to die in the place. He said, you ought to weep and cry. You ought to quit all this worldly stuff and you ought to get on your faces before God and weep and cry and ask for forgiveness and God do a deeper work in my life, one that won't allow me to go back to this kind of stuff. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they who mourn. Those who are conscious of their sinfulness, those who give in easily, do things they shouldn't do, see things in other people, grieve over the indifference of people. Listen to this verse. Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Does your Bible say something similar to that? What's that mean? Notice he said, first of all, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a party. Because the house of mourning is where we're all going to wind up anyway. It's like a funeral. And what will happen after that? Where will you be? You won't get any answers at a party. You won't get any answers in a house of feasting. But there comes a time in your life you need to settle within yourself where you are and what you're going to do with your life. Let me read another translation. It might clear it up a little bit. Here's one that says, It is better to go to a funeral than to attend a feast. Funerals remind us that we all must die. Isn't that true? I've done a few funerals. I don't like them. I like one. But a funeral reminds us of death. About the sin in the garden. Man died. This is what sin does. It kills. And no man can escape that. It is appointed until man wants to die. And at the day of your death, what will happen to you is like we used to say years ago, if you died tonight, where will you be in the morning? If you died right now, where would you be 10 seconds from right now? You'll be somewhere. You don't just cease to exist. You remain in one way or another, in one state or the other, in a state of bliss or a state of damnation. You'll be one or the other. And if you did get to the place of death and you met somebody on the other side and they asked you, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? Because I deserve it. They'll say bye-bye. You have to have an answer. Listen at this translation. It is better to go to a funeral than to a banquet because that is where everyone will end up. Everyone who is alive should take this to heart. Another translation. We got a bunch of them. It is better to go to a home where there is mourning than to one where there is a party because the living should always remind themselves that death is waiting for us all. Another translation, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for in that we are put in mind of the end of all, and the living thinketh what is to come. Remember that verse in Jeremiah chapter 5? You don't, but let me read it for you. It said, the prophets prophesy falsely, and 
they do this wrong and that wrong. And he said, and my people love to have it so. It's at the very end of Jeremiah 5. And the last words in the fifth chapter says, but what will you do in the end? You like it man's way. You like it differently than God said it. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their own means. And my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? It doesn't last forever. One day it ends, and when it ends, it's you and God. Isn't that right? There's only one thing that can stand, only one thing that can stand between you and God, and that is sin. I had long enough to preach we could talk about the fact that Jesus bore your sins, and he is the mediator between God and man, but you must treat him not only as a sin bearer, but as your Lord and Savior. And everything that's not the way he wants should bother you. Any way you live, it's not the way he told you to live, it's got to bother you. And if you won't turn from those ways, what can he say? Well done? Like I said, you may be well done, but that he's not going to say that. Go back to Matthew 5 and we will close. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 again. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So that means that though we have these moments where we're really bothered, really bothered by the sinful things that we see, there comes a time when God will intervene and give you comfort. You know, you may weep for a night. Isn't there a verse somewhere that says, you may weep for a night, but joy comes in the morning? Yes. God isn't going to leave you alone. Jesus cried out on those Galilean hillsides and was heard because of who he was, because of his piety. But there were times he cried out. The Bible says he cried out. What was he crying about? He cried out. There were things that bothered him, and he cried out. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, knowing what he was going to do, and he wept. There's something about the way Jesus is that we should be also. There's something about how he hated sin that we should hate it also. Something about how he would not allow sin in his life and be able to say the devil has no place in me that we should be able to say also. For he is an example that we should follow in his steps. And I believe that if we follow in his steps and we will come to the place that he was. I'm pretty sure this is still in the Bible. There's a verse that we are to grow up into him in all things till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a, is that hard to say, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you can't get there with a movie magazine in your face all day long. I'm talking about a switchover from death to life, from old to new. And you do that because you recognize that if you don't, then you cannot say you're following Jesus. Because if you're following Jesus, then you're living on his terms, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is teaching us how to live on his terms. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4 said, God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Death will be gone. There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. Won't that be good? All the things that we have to wrestle with in this life, sorrow, crying, 
pain, difficulty, rejection, oh, it'll all be gone. It'll all be gone. The Bible says God will wipe away all of our tears. For in the end, we will be comforted with divine comfort. God is going to make it well for us. So, like we said a while ago, his anger may endure, but a moment in his favor, in God's favor, is life. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Hold on, saints. Hold on. Don't give up. Keep your hands on the plow. Keep looking unto Jesus. He is the author, the finisher, the perfecter, the sustainer of our faith. He is able to make all grace abound toward us that we always having all sufficiency and all things can abound to every good work we can through Christ. We can do nothing without him, but we can through him. And when that's not working in your life, the reason you are not comforted tonight and bothered and agitated in your heart about maybe a message is because there's something wrong with your heart. Blessed are the poor in heart and blessed are those that mourn. Because these are the ones who have been affected by the purity of God. These are the ones in whom darkness has made itself for what it is. It's ugly. It's turned us away from God. It's killing us, killed our parents, killed our families. Sinfulness. We want God to deliver us from all of these things. Because God is for us and not against us. Nobody in the world, in my opinion, Nobody in the world is more blessed than Christians. I'm not talking about church members because they're no different than a lot of people in the world. I'm talking about Christians. Nobody is more blessed than we are. Nobody. May God help us to see things in life the way God sees it. For being seated with him in heavenly places, we see the things that he opens our eyes to see. And if we see things that break our heart and we weep over it, he will comfort us. But it gives evidence to you that God's heart is being worked into your heart. And the things that trouble him are troubling you. That's a good way to know you're one of his. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are tonight in this place a needy people. And we have assembled here not only because it's the right thing to do, but because we have a need. We cannot meet our need in and of ourselves. You'll have to allow us to have that need met. For you're our source. Teach us to depend upon you. To be able to sing as that song says, he's all I need. That we could really come to that. That no matter what turn in life we go through, you will be all we need. We can take you at your word and trust you with all of our heart, knowing that you watch over your word to perform it. I ask you to bless the people before whom I stand that they may have a heart to understand. They may be convicted by the things that you give them, not what I say, but what you say. That you will continue to lead us in the right way and bless us as we go along the way. And whatever corrections we need, Lord, we ask you to make those corrections. Thank you for the high privilege and the high call. Thank you for all that you've done and you're doing and you're yet going to do for us. And I pray now your blessing will rest upon all those that are here in Jesus' name. 
Amen.